You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Gospel of John, chapter 5. We're going to read together verses 25 through 30. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. And will come forth those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Let's pray together. O Spirit of God, we thank You for Your Word and for inspiring it for us. We pray now that as You dwell within Your people, that You would open Your Word to our hearts and to our eyes, that we might behold the Son and glorify and honor Him, and thus glorify and honor the Father. May You be pleased with our time here. May You teach us of Yourself, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, next Sunday is Resurrection Sunday, and so it couldn't have worked out any better if I had really tried to plan it, which I didn't try too much, to be in the text that we are in for not only the last several weeks, but also this Sunday and next Sunday, because we have, for the last three or four weeks, been talking about the subject of judgment, and resurrection. We've been talking about being spiritually dead, being made spiritually alive, and though we haven't really landed on this subject yet, we have sort of skirted the issue a little bit as we have been thinking at least of the eternal ramifications or the future ramifications of our current spiritual life, the spiritual life that we presently possess. So we have talked a little bit about the coming future resurrection, but only as sort of the consequence of our present, current, spiritual resurrection, the spiritual life that we enjoy. So that's what John 5 is all about. We've talked about life and the the giving of life and the Son's sovereignty to give life. Back in verse 21, the Son gives life to whom He wills. Verse 24, Jesus said, Those who hear His word and believe the Father who sent Him have eternal life and have passed out of death into life. And all of that has had to do with spiritual resurrection. We haven't really talked about physical resurrection yet. We will next Sunday. As next Sunday we begin to see the future implications of our current spiritual resurrection. Being granted eternal life has not only present ramifications, that is things that we enjoy spiritually as we're now able to commune with God, forgiveness of sins, spiritual life, but there is a massive future implication of the spiritual life that we enjoy, and that is the resurrection of our bodies. And so beginning in verse 25, Jesus starts to tie all of this together as we begin to see that in verse 25, Jesus talks about the spiritual resurrection, and then in verses 28 and 29, the physical resurrection that is to come, spiritual resurrection of those who believe, verse 25, the eventual physical resurrection, bodily resurrection of all men, verse 28 and 29, some to eternal life, some to eternal judgment, two resurrections, a resurrection to life and a resurrection to judgment. And so the thing that we're just going to observe this Sunday in passing and mark it for next week, in the end, everybody 
redeemed and unredeemed, saved and unsaved, believing and unbelieving, saved and lost, everybody goes to spend eternity in a body. Those who are redeemed spend eternity in a body that is fit for glory, life, honor, immortality, joy, bliss, life, service to God, communion with Him. Those who are unredeemed spend eternity in a body that is fit to bear the wrath of God for their sin for all of eternity. Everybody gets a physical body at the resurrection. So today we begin verse 25. We are still talking now about spiritual resurrection because we haven't quite got to the physical resurrection, which is next week, wonderfully how that worked out, next week, physical resurrection, which is the implications or the fleshing out, pardon the pun, the fleshing out of the spiritual resurrection that we have and the teaching of the spiritual resurrection that we currently enjoy. So verse 25, spiritual resurrection still, and that's what we're going to be looking at today. Verse 25, 26, and 27, we're going to notice two things. First, we're going to notice how it is that the dead are raised spiritually in verse 25. And then in verses 26 and 27, why is Jesus or how is Jesus able to do this massive work of raising men spiritually and physically? How is it going to happen? How are the dead to be raised? What is the instrument? And then why is it that Jesus is able to do that? Verse 25 is the how. How is this going to happen? Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. Truly, truly is that phrase we saw at the beginning of verse 24, saw at the beginning of verse 19, introduces something of incredible importance, a very solemn introduction to catch your attention. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is. Now, if it weren't for that phrase, an hour is coming and now is, if it weren't for those words, and now is, you and I might presume that what he's talking about in verse 25 is the same thing he's going to talk about in verses 28 and 29. Namely, a physical resurrection. If Jesus had just said in verse 25, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live, then we would think that he's describing verse 28. Do not marvel at this, an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. But Jesus adds this little phrase, and now is. And that little phrase indicates to us that what he's describing in verse 25 is not a physical bodily resurrection, but a spiritual resurrection. The time is coming, or the hour is coming, and it now is. That is, in one sense, it's yet future. The reality of this and the experience of verse 25 is yet future. But in another sense, in a very real sense, it is already currently happening. So what is Jesus describing? It's kind of a seemingly paradoxical or contradictory statement. How can it be coming and yet still be here? I would liken it to when the sun is coming up, you see the sun even before you see the sun, right? You see glimmers of it as the sun begins to approach the horizon. You can tell the sun is rising. You can see glimmers of light. You can see things. You can you know the sun is coming up, but it's not yet up yet. It loves a little redundant. It's not yet up. You know it's coming up, and you're seeing the effects of it. It's the same thing with the spiritual resurrection of those who were, even at Jesus' time and in that day, being raised spiritually from the dead. Can you think of any examples of people in Jesus' immediate context, who had experienced new life and been given spiritual life. Any examples? The disciples, right? All except for Judas. Judas was never saved. All except for Judas. You have the disciples. Remember the Samaritans, the woman at the well? She received new life, right? How about the whole Samaritan village? All of them got saved. They believed the word. How about the nobleman's son? He believed the word of Jesus, and he was saved, and his whole household was saved. So even there in Jesus' time, in Jesus' day, the hour had already arrived in which he was raising people to spiritual life. He was giving people eternal life. And that's what he's offering to the Pharisees who were persecuting him. 
if you will believe in me, and if you will trust me, and if you will believe the one who has sent me and hear my word and obey me, I will give you spiritual life. Because the hour was coming, Pentecost and after Pentecost, and really the hour is still today, isn't it? Still today, even yet today, while we sit here, there are people all over this world who are being saved and are being given spiritual life. As God calls out His people out of this world and gives them life. So the hour was coming, and the hour already was, when the dead were hearing the voice of the Son of God. Who are the dead? talked about this last week. They're the spiritual dead. Notice again, Jesus' description of those who are without Him. How does Jesus describe people who are lost, who are under His judgment? They're what? Sick? Terminally ill? They're dead. They're spiritually dead. That's Jesus' description of you and I before faith. We were spiritually dead, not spiritually ill. Some people think that man has this little spark of divinity that just needs to be blown into a flame and it'll eventually flame up into this divine life. It's not true. Or some people think that really what we need is just a little bit of grace to sort of get us over the hump, to deal away with the sin problem. If we could just, just do away with that, give us a little bit of grace to sort of race over the crest, we can coast downhill from there. All we need is just a little bit of help. I do my best, Jesus does the rest. That's not true. What is our spiritual condition? We are dead. Dead. Ephesians 2, 1. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. Ephesians 5, 14. Awake sleeper, arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Colossians 2, 13 says we are dead in our transgressions and the uncircumcision of our flesh and we have been made alive. This is not something that you and I do. It's not something we have the ability to do. Some people think that uh, this whole doctrine that man is dead in his trespasses and sins and unable to please God and totally unable to to affect his own salvation, that that was just the invention of 16th century reformers like Martin Luther and John Calvin. Nothing could be further from the truth. What did Paul say? You're dead. What did Jesus say? You're dead. That's the problem. That's what spiritual life is. That's what salvation is. Salvation is being given a life that you do not possess beforehand. In any measure, you're dead. And I don't think it's making too much out of the truth to point out that dead people do not raise themselves to spiritual life. Notice that? Every time our salvation or our resurrection or our spiritual life is mentioned in Scripture, we are the passive agents. He raised us up. The Spirit gives us new life. Jesus raises us up. It's His voice. We don't will it. We don't decide to do it. We don't affect it. We don't impart spiritual life to ourselves. Why is that? Because we don't have life in ourselves to impart to ourselves. If we had the life to impart to ourselves, we wouldn't need Jesus to do it for us. But we are absolutely, totally helpless and hopeless and without spiritual life and dependent upon another who will come in and sovereignly resurrect the dead. That's what Ephesians or John 5.21 said. He gives life to whom He wills. And I can't will that. And I can't decide that I'm going to raise myself. I have to be given life because I'm dead. I am a spiritual corpse. That's how you're born into this world. Spiritually dead on arrival. Absolutely, totally, with not one bit of spiritual life in you. Unable to do anything for yourself. But you say, Jim, if it's true, and it is, that the, that we are born dead, and that we are spiritually dead, and that dead people don't raise themselves, how is it that dead people hear? How is it that dead people hear? Because the very verse says, the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. So if dead people can't raise themselves and they can't do anything, how is it that they can hear to begin with, right? That's a good question. How is it that the dead hear? How is it that spiritual corpses actually hear the voice of the Son of God? Because there are some who listen, and we 
we saw last week that this hearing is more than just listening. It's more than just allowing the words to fall upon your auditory nerve and registering what they say. This hearing is an embrace, a faith embrace, where you embrace it, you believe it, you obey it, you are transformed by it, you reach out, you grab it. It's that type of hearing. Because not everybody who has the, the gospel proclamation fall upon their ears is saved. So are there people who listen or at least hear the gospel but do not believe and do not hear it in the sense that Jesus is describing? Are there people who hear the gospel and don't believe? Are there people who hear the gospel but really don't hear the gospel? There certainly are. A broad path, a broad way that leads to destruction of people full, a a, a path that leads to destruction full of people who hear but don't hear the gospel. How is it, I ask, that when I got saved, I was sitting next to one of my best friends in all of the world, and we were both equally dead in our trespasses and sins, equally uninterested in the gospel. And we both sat there and heard the same speaker, the same text of scripture, the same message. We lived our lives in parallel course. How is it that when I heard the gospel, it came to me with power, and in the Spirit, and life-giving force, but he remains to this day, spiritually, as dead as Custer's horse. How is that possible? Why did it come with life to me, and not with to him? We grew up together. We played together, we socialized together, we did everything together. We were both equally dead. Why is it that the gospel came with life to me? Why is it that I heard, and he didn't? We listened to the same thing, and to this day, he remains dead in his trespasses and sins. I'm wiser, more intellectual, better looking. We can all laugh. Smarter. I made a good choice. What is the difference? Well, let's let Jesus answer the question, why is it that some people don't hear? Turn over to John chapter 8 real quick. In a parallel passage, Jesus is not strictly parallel passage, but in discussing the same or a similar subject of why it is that some hear and some do not hear. He is talking to the self-righteous Pharisees who were opposing him, calling him a bastard, an illegitimate child, calling him demon-possessed, calling him a Samaritan, rejecting his word, rejecting him, still trying to kill him. They hated him. They were not listening, were not hearing him. Why is it that they did not hear? Look at verse 42. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative, but He sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? That's the question, right? Why is it that my friend did not hear, and I did? Why is it that they rejected and the disciples didn't? Verse 43, It is because you cannot, you are unable to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Why is it that they did not hear? Why is it that they did not believe? They could not hear. Their ears were deaf. Why? Because Jesus said, you're of your father the devil, and it's his nature you have. You don't belong to God. You are not God's. God does not belong to you. You do not belong to God. Therefore, you cannot. You are unable to hear me. You are unable to listen. Unlike the disciples who heard the voice of the shepherd, the Pharisees did not. And you're unable to hear because you love darkness, you love sin, 
You love lies, and you love your father who is the father of lies. And every time he lies, he speaks from his own nature, and you're just like him. You share his nature, and you love, and you bask in, and you bathe in lies. Look at verse 45. But I speak the truth. You do not believe me. Why did they not believe him? Because he spoke the truth. And they could not hear the truth. Lies they could hear. Lies they loved. But the truth they could not hear. Verse 46, which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason you do not hear them, because you are not of God. Now listen to Jesus in John chapter 10 describe the exact same thing with a different analogy. John chapter 10 There was a division, verse 19, among the people. After Jesus laid claim to deity, the people were divided. Some people said, he's the Christ, he's the son of David. Others said, no, this man is a demon-possessed Samaritan. And so there was a division among the people. And then Jesus, while he was walking in Solomon's portico, at the Feast of Dedication, verse 22 and 23, the Jews gathered around him, verse 24, and were saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them. Now this is just as plain as it can be. I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they testify of me. Why did they not believe? They weren't smart enough? They weren't as spiritually in tune as the disciples? What is the reason for their unbelief? Look at verse 26. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. If they had been of his sheep, they would have believed. It's not that they were not of his sheep because they wouldn't believe. It is because, it is that they would not believe because they did not belong to him. Look at verse 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. What is the reason for unbelief? They do not belong to the Savior. That's it. The sheep hear the voice of the Son of God. How is it that the dead hear? Why did I hear? Because I belong to him. I'm his sheep. How is it that the dead, the spiritually dead, can hear the voice of the Son of God? Listen, if you're standing at a funeral and you call out the name of the person lying in the casket and they start to twitch and open their eyes and look at you, then you know that something supernatural has happened, right? Is it safe to assume? If they were dead and they hear you when you call their voice, something supernatural happened. It is the same with salvation. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Why is it? How is it that we heard the voice of the Son of God? We heard His voice because we are of His sheep. And there was a time when I was blind and instantly I saw, and listen, I saw everything clearly. It was like somebody had turned on a blinding light in a a cave. Before that moment, I could not discern truth from error. I didn't know right from wrong. I had no spiritual understanding whatsoever. And in an instant, I went from darkness to light. I know that I was spiritually dead. And at one moment, after hearing the gospel for years, I came to life just like that. And I heard the voice of the Son of God, and I believed and I trusted Him. And the gospel came to me in spirit and in power and in much assurance. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5. How is it that some of the dead hear the voice of the Son of God? Because they are His what? His sheep. That's why you've heard. If you went from darkness to light and you went from death to life, it's because of one thing and one thing only. Not because you're better or smarter or better looking or more intelligent or wiser or able to make a good decision. It's not because you willed it. It's not because you worked for it. It's not to the man who wills or the man who runs, but upon God who has mercy. It is due to one thing. You're his sheep. And at some point in time, the shepherd said to you, Jim, 
but it was your name, not mine. Jim, come to me. And the dead heard the voice of the Son of God, and they came to him. Why? Because we are his sheep. That's how the dead hear. Most assuredly, I say to you, the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And even today, and even right now, all over this world, the dead hear the voice of the Son of God, and they come to him because they are his sheep. And Jesus says, all that the Father has given to me will come to me. I will give them eternal life. No one will snatch them out of my hands. I will raise all of them up at the last day. I will not lose one of them. Why? Because there is sheep. And the good shepherd will not fail to bring in all of his sheep and secure them for eternity. And then like we read in the scripture reading, to turn around and to offer that back to the Father, that the Father might be glorified in the Son. What a marvelous reality, is it not? We live today because we belong to the shepherd. How is it that the voice of the shepherd is heard? When we say that we hear the, the voice of the shepherd, we're not talking about special revelation. We're not talking about a, a red bat phone that gets special messages from God or, or being in tune and hearing that and dialing it in or anything like that. When we talk about hearing the voice of the shepherd. We're talking about one thing. We're talking about having the word of God come to us in spirit and in power that quickens the heart, opens the ears, opens the eyes, regenerates and give newness of life. The voice of the shepherd is heard in the word of God. That's why James 1.18 says, He brought us forth by the word of truth. Why 1 Peter 1 says, You have been born again not of seed which is perishable but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. And this is the word that was preached to you. Romans 10.17, Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. How is it that the sheep hear the voice of the shepherd? They hear it where? In the word of God. It is when the word is preached that his sheep hear his voice. And that same word which called you to himself is the same word that sanctifies you and feeds you and cleanses you and encourages you and comforts you and equips you and secures you for all of eternity. This is the all-sufficient word. And in this we hear the voice of the shepherd. This is why the tragedy of the modern seeker-sensitive movement where the Word of God is removed from the pulpit and removed from the service in the attempts of not offending anybody so that we can bring them all to Christ. What is it that brings people to Christ? Where is it that we hear the voice of the shepherd? It's in the Word of God. So what I hear you saying is we'll just mute the voice of the shepherd and hope that the sheep come. Are you kidding me? It's insane. Where do we hear the voice of the shepherd? In the text of Scripture. And the more we make that the central element of our worship and our teaching and our preaching and our gospel sharing, the more the sheep will hear the shepherd's voice and come and receive new life. So how is it that this happens? It's through his voice. It's the voice of the shepherd. I want you to notice something else about the voice, by the way. The same voice that gives you spiritual life is the same voice that someday will raise all men in physical bodies. Look at verse 28. Back to John 5. Verse 28, do not marvel at this, an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. There's a connection between our spiritual resurrection and our physical resurrection. The connection is this. It is the same man, the same voice, the same shepherd who does both. And all of those who have been raised to newness of life spiritually will receive resurrected bodies by the same voice. Now what is Jesus going to say? What is that going to look like? I don't know. Scripture doesn't say. Maybe he will simply quote a passage of Scripture. Maybe he will utter something like he did to Lazarus. Lazarus, come forth. But it won't be with Lazarus. It will just be, come forth. But it will be some bold proclamation of his voice. He will say the word, and all men will raise. I don't know what that's what word he's going to say. But I'll tell you what, that is going to be one fun event to watch. Is it not? 
I am longing and looking forward to that day when I will stand on the sidelines and hear His voice and see all of the dead raised. And we'll talk next week about what that physical resurrection is. How has it happened? The voice of the shepherd. The same voice that gave you spiritual life will give you physical life and resurrect the body that you now dwell in. So why is Jesus able to do this? This is verse 26 and 27. Why is Jesus able to do this? For just as the Father has life in Himself, even so He gave to the Son also to have life in Himself. And He gave Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Why is it that the Son is able to raise whomever He wills? The answer is in verse 26. Because the Father has life in Himself, and the Father has given to the Son also to have life in Himself. So the Son has authority to raise whomever He wills because the Father has given to the Son the authority to raise any that He wills, any that He wants. Because the Son, like the Father, has life in Himself. Now every Jew and everybody listening to Jesus at the time would have acknowledged and would have understood that the Father, God the Father, has life in Himself. That is to say that the Father does not derive and God does not derive His life from some other source. There's not some battery of energy out there, a battery of life out there that the Father draws upon for His own existence. He is that life source. And all that is living lives by His permission, at His command. It lives at His timetable. It dies at His timetable. He is the source of life. Everything that lives has its being and its life in Him. Job 10 verse 12 says, You have granted me life and loving kindness, and your Spirit has preserved me. Job 33, verse 4, The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Psalm 36, verse 9, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. And Psalm 66, verse 9, says that God keeps us in life and does not allow our feet to slip. Who is it that gives life? God. Nothing lives. Nothing lives. Not a plant, not a cell lives apart from His knowledge and His permission. He allows it. Everything that lives derives its life from here, uh, from Him. He is the source and an infinite source of all life. And I wish I had a whole message just to preach on this. But this is wild. If God were to create a billion universes just like our own and fill them all with life, teeming to the brim with living things, it would not deplete His supply of life one bit. Because He has it in infinite and limitless degree. That is what it means to have life in Himself. He never runs out. He relies upon nothing else for that life-giving strength. Even so, the Father has given to the Son to have life in Himself. So the Son, whom we find out in John 1 verse 4, has is life and His life is the light of man. That Son, that eternal Word, has life from all of eternity. And He has life in Himself so that like the Father, because He is God, He shares the full nature, the full essence, and the full power of God. He has life in Himself. Because the Son is God, He has life in Himself just as the Father and just as the Spirit. Remember in our doctrine of the Trinity, we said that each person of the Trinity possesses all of the nature that is God in fullness. He doesn't share it with the other three. All three of them possess it equally at the same time. The Son, because He is the Son and because He is God, possesses all of the life that the Father does, and He has it in Himself, totally and completely. And this is why Jesus is able to offer to the woman at the well living water. This is why He's able to offer the Jews in John chapter 8 the light of life. This is why He is able to say, all who come to Me, I will give you life. Just come to Me and believe and I will grant you eternal life. He is able to make these claims because He is an infinite supply of life and He gives it to whom He wills. And so He has life in Himself like the Father. Fullness, an eternal, an infinite fountain of life that He possesses. And He does not derive that life from the Father in the sense of getting it from Him like you and I get life from God. 
He has it in fullest measure. So why is it then, this is the theological question of the day, why is it that we read in chapter 5, verse 26, that the Father gave this to the Son? In what sense does the Father give to the Son to have life in Himself? And some people camp on verses like that and say, see, there is a creature distinction. There is Jesus receiving life the same way that you and I receive life. So was there a time when the Son did not have life? Was there a time when the Son received the gift of life from the Father? Or when the Father said to the Son, okay, I'll give you life, but I'm going to give life to you more than I do creatures and more than I do angels. I'm going to grant to you to have life in yourself. Does this make Jesus less than the Father? I think there's a couple different ways of understanding what this means. One, and I think this is this is probably where I would have to land if I had to choose one of these options. All three of these are good, by the way. It is possible that this language is something accommodated to the Incarnation. And by that I mean that when Jesus left the glories of heaven above, He did not cease to be God. He did not give up equality with the Father. He gave up the independent use of those attributes and He submitted the, the use of His glory and His attributes to the will of the Father so that He humiliated Himself, He condescended Himself, and He self-limited the use of His attributes and His glory for the purpose of uniting with humanity. And it's possible, and I think likely, that this phrase is used to describe the power that He had even in His self-limiting condescension and humility. That is, that even while He left the glories of heaven above and came to the earth here, it so pleased the Father as to say to the Son, You are going to have this life, the life that you have shared with me for all of eternity that you have in yourself. You will not give that up and you will not limit that. You will retain the sovereignty to use that life and to distribute that life to any whom you will. So that even in his condescension, the Father willed that this power would be the Son's to use in fullest measure, even during the days of his humiliation. That's one possibility. Second, it could be that just as the Father willed that the Son be the instrument, through whom all judgment would take place, so the Father willed that the Son would be the instrument through whom the dispension of all life to all creatures would take place. So that we could say the Father willed to give all judgment to the Son, and in the same way He gave to the Son the power to give all life that is given. So that the Son became becomes the dispenser not only of judgment, but of all life, spiritual and physical. It's possible that that is the case. It's also possible that it is the case that what is being described here is an eternal relationship that you have the Father who gave to the Son to have life in Himself, and the Son, the existence of the Son, is generated by the Father, and that this relationship has always been from all of eternity. And that's just enough to make your whole head just spin right out of out of whack. It's like a gyroscope. It just starts to go, and you say, how can this be that the Father gave this to the Son, and it has always been this way? It just always has. And like we talked about at the beginning of John 5, we're reaching, we, we get into the limitations of language where you start to open up the veil to look upon the divine nature and you say, it's too much for me. I just can't understand it. I think that's the same thing that's going on here. The Son has life in Himself. He possesses it in full. He gets that from the Father and it has always been that way. There has never been a time when it has not been the case. At least you and I should take away from this the obvious distinction between the Father and the Son, right? The modalists who believe that they're one person with different roles how does that make sense? How does the Father give Himself to the Son something? That doesn't make any sense. There are obviously more than one person. The Father, as God, is giving something to another person who is also God, and He gives that to the Son. And He gave to the Son to have life in Himself. So how is it that the Son is able to give spiritual life to whomever He wills and to raise all men at the end of time in physical bodies? How is the Son able to do that? It is because He has life in Himself. Second, I want you to notice the reason for the judgment. And we've been seeing these two themes, life and death and life, coming together, the Son giving life, having authority and sovereignty over that, and also this theme of judgment, and they're connected. 
All of those who are raised spiritually before the final resurrection and get new life will experience a resurrection to life and escape judgment. All of those who are not raised spiritually and given new life before the before they die will not be raised to life, but will be raised to judgment, and the Son will execute judgment on them. So how is it that the Son, Jesus, is able to say in verse 23, the Father has committed all judgment to the Son? Why has the Father done this? The Father has done this, verse 23, so that all will honor the Son, and by honoring the Son, they honor the Father. But here's another reason. The Son is able to execute judgment. He has authority to execute judgment, verse 27, because He is the Son of Man. At some point in John, and I don't know when this is going to be yet, but at some point in the Gospel of John, I want to take a whole Sunday just to preach on that phrase, the Son of Man, because it's worth a whole sermon. Just what is that title, and why do we find it in the Old Testament, in the New Testament? It's Jesus' favorite designation of Himself. If Jesus called Himself anything, it was the Son of Man over and over and over again. It's used over and over again in the Gospels. That was His favorite title for Himself. What is it? Long and short, this is it. It takes the idea of deity and the idea of humanity and puts them into one title. A perfect description of the God-man, right? In calling himself the Son of Man, he is not denying his deity. He is affirming his deity. He's the Son of Man. That is a divine title. And it is also a human title because he is God in human flesh. So that it is humanity. It's also a messianic title. It comes from Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel says, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Who is the Son of Man? He's the one that Daniel saw approaching the Ancient of Days, the Father on his throne, and being given glory and a dominion and a kingdom to rule the nations, a dominion and a kingdom which will never pass away. And he is a he is a potentate, he is a ruler, he is a sovereign, and so that obviously brings in the idea of judgment. You can see that? He will rule the nations. He will judge the nations. So the title Son of Man is a divine title. It is a human title. It's a messianic title. It's all wrapped up into one, and it has to do with him being God and man and ruler, all in one title. It's a marvelous thing. Because of his incarnation, because he came to earth, took upon himself flesh, was united with humanity, because he has borne the weakness of our flesh without its sinful temptation or without its sinful nature, he has borne the limitations and the weaknesses of humanity, and he died as, as a man, and he suffered as a man, and he appealed to men, and he was raised as a man. He, as the God-man, is the perfect one to execute the judgment of God upon men. Because of his incarnation, he has been given this position and this authority to judge. I think it's the same idea as Philippians chapter 2. He did not consider his equality with God something to be held onto and used for his own benefit, but he laid aside the glories and the independent use of his attributes. He was made like sinful flesh, came and took on the form of a servant, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's the same idea as John chapter 5. Because of his humiliation and his incarnation, he has been given that name and he has been given the authority to give life and he has been granted the authority to judge. One last observation, we'll close. If I can remember what it was. Oh, this was it. Listen, the idea of judgment is essential to a gospel proclamation. Jesus preached a coming judgment. 
The apostles preached a coming judgment. 2,000 years of church history, faithful men have preached a coming judgment. Jesus did not shy away from talking about the reality of the judgment which is to come, even in the face of immense hostility. If in your presentation of the gospel to an unbeliever, you fail to mention the judgment that is to come and the justness of God for that, you are not being faithful to Christ. You will not win people by loving them into the kingdom. You will not win people by just showing them your life. You must present to them the realities of hell. They will not flee to a Savior unless they are fleeing from a judge. And they must be presented with the reality of the judgment to come because it is just as real as the physical resurrection to come. He has authority to give life and he has authority to judge. And we ought to share with people there is a judgment to come for your sin. Don't shy away from that in the gospel proclamation. Because our gospel is the good news that, listen, there is an escape from that judgment. How do I get escape from judgment? You hear the word of the voice of the shepherd. You believe on him whom he has sent. And you entrust and embrace yourself to him in repentant faith. And he will give you eternal life. And he will raise you from dead to living. Because he has the power to do that. The one that will judge you is the one who offers you forgiveness. If you will turn to him in repentant faith and believe upon him for salvation. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to you for the salvation that you have wrought for us and in us. We thank you that you, by your grace, counted us among your sheep, that you made us your sheep, and it is all by your grace. You have done this work, and we thank you and praise you for it. We thank you for the spiritual life that we enjoy, which is our current possession. We thank you for the eternal physical and spiritual life that we will enjoy with you for all of eternity. We look forward to that day when the very voice that has that we have heard, which has brought us to faith and secured us in it, will also someday raise us to newness of life in physical bodies, and we will enjoy the glories of your presence and your person for all of eternity. What a blessed hope and what a glorious God you are. We entrust and commit ourselves to you and to that grace in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.